This is Theology Gaming Monologues, and this is Final Fantasy Tactics. Note, spoilers ahead. A quote from Wolfhart Pannenberg from Basic Questions in Theology. History is the most comprehensive horizon of Christian theology. All theological questions and answers are only meaningful within the framework of history which God has with humanity and through humanity in the whole of creation. Pannenberg, from my perspective, retains the title of Historical Theologian, at a time when theology sought to escape the throes of the Enlightenment, which called the historical veracity of Scripture into question, Pannenberg dives right into the fray. He affirms that God's revelation can't be known outside of the context of history because that is the precise place where it is revealed. Think of it in this way. Ideas are, in general, both private and public. In the sense that ideas arise from the mind, they are, in first incarnation, only accessible to you. Eventually, these ideas bloom and take full shape as one begins to reflect and understand possible implications of such thought. Once this process has occurred to the best of that individual's ability, the idea becomes shared knowledge among a group, hence its public nature. We could also call this, quote-unquote, objective. If we apply this to the truth claims of the Bible, then theological knowledge in a Christian paradigm remains fully public. The subjective personal experience of an individual isn't enough to sustain it because it makes universal claims. They are ideas in the realm of the public, and they can never be extracted. They are quote-unquote indirect in that the original source of the ideas isn't known to us, except for our own ideas. Thus, we have a foundation for ideas in general. Video games, then, also exist as a product of such idea exchange. They take their primary inspirations from the perennial impulse of humanity to engage in structured play, while also exhibiting elements of literature, music, philosophy, and religion, at least in recent times. They have evolved faster than nearly any other medium precisely because of the confluence of civilization that came before them. Most video games, at this point in time, don't even require a working knowledge of reading. Subtitles and text, once a requirement, find themselves relegated to the sidelines as voice acting and graphical prowess reign supreme. Frankly put, this is a good thing. 
video games deserve exposure to all peoples as a common experience. However, the constant emphasis on realism and quote-unquote adult games loses what makes video games a special medium. Their communicatory properties, in fact, don't just stem from technological advances. Real thought and work must take place to produce a meaningful and fun product. The quote-unquote growing up of the medium means a sort of ageism creeps into the video game realm, and this isn't an especially positive development. Children, supposedly, can be inundated with bright colors and slapstick comedy alone. They can't be tasked with confrontation with the world's real problems. Of course, that's a new narrative developed over time in our cultural mythos. Children of previous eras certainly grew up in violent and inhospitable contexts, sure, but even children's stories displayed elements of the macabre. They're awash with dirt and grime of modern life, even if fantasy becomes the primary element of communication. Take a look at any of Grimm's fairy tales or the non-Disney-fied stories. They display real and terrible imagery, which reinforce their moral lessons. Children weren't treated as anything but tiny person who, in time, would become adults. Thus, they were raised and reared into that societal context right from birth. You can see echoes of this in C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, as well as J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. These are fantasy worlds that also confront real-world issues. They make the problems stark and real, even in unreality. Modern society coddles our children and doesn't prepare them for that transition in the least. Heck, take a good look at the Bible. It's a tremendously offensive book, filled with all sorts of horrific things that, apparently, make children shudder at the thought. Not that 2,000 years of little Christian children have anything to say about that. <laughs> in fact, children originally were seen as uh, leeches on society. If they survived the harsh early years, they would contribute. If not, no great loss. This makes Matthew 19 all the more revelatory. Then some children were brought to him so that he may lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from them there. Theology was thought to be the domain of the adult, the man, and the leader. Rather, Jesus, as in most things, declares the opposite as true. It is not the status of the child that is affirmed, but the equality of children to the rest of the society. That doesn't mean children can understand all things. I know this by both scripture and by personal experience. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I give you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able yet to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. In fact, it surprises me that the video games I played as a child are pregnant with meaning and aren't shy about the plight of humanity, even in the midst of colorful and imaginative aesthetics. Appearances don't deceive, but augment the message. A child can relate to the realms of the mind more than a straightforward description of reality because it adheres to their developing thought processes. This is why Mega Man Zero's apocalyptic setting holds greater regard for many children than Cormac McCarthy's The Road. The former was designed for children and adults to interact and play, while the latter represents a particular link between father and son that is eponymous to the parent's perspective. 
Mega Man Zero gives a colorful yet grimy and depressed setting reflecting the downfall of humanity. The vestiges of mankind's greatness show a crumbling edifice wherein sentient robots, reploids, turn and ultimately destroy their creators. Certainly, that's a great setting to allow children to wander and play, right? The Japanese, for whatever reason, have mastered this art of combining maturity, structure, and innocence together in small settings and grand sweeping tales. Final Fantasy Tactics represents the epitome of such design. It takes an appealing, yet muted aesthetic design as a front for its authentic and fully realized world of sin, corruption, death, violence, war, rape, betrayal, family conflicts, demonic possessions, false religions, magic, technology, politics, class, manipulation, deception, the true nature of history, and the nature of friendship. <sighs> In America, it's rated T for teen. That's gotta be one of the worst misnomers I've ever seen. It is the abstraction of these concepts through the visual style that, even as a 10-year-old child, I could masterfully understand a lot of it. That's not to say the translation was perfect. For all intents and purposes, it's a complete mess. But it was of little consequence for a developing mind which fills in the blanks with their idealistic faculties. Tactus's story rests... Sorry about the apostrophes and contractions, because tactics sounds weird in a contraction... However, upon two distinct personages, Ramza Biov of the House Biov is the adopted son of a war hero in the realm of Ivalis. In a way, he's a combination of both lowborn and highborn, a distinctly disadvantageous position in the realm of tactics. Delita, on the other hand, is fully lowborn. A peasant family holds little prospect in Ivalice, except for the urging of the Biov and his friend Ramza, Delita wouldn't even be admitted into the military academy. The game begins at the end of the Fifty Years' War. Peace has been restored, and Ramza's father goes to the final rest. Still, unrest among the people, due to the soldiers' unpaid wages, escalate, and rebellions must be snuffed. So it is that Ramza leaps into the fray with Delita in hopes to quell the rebellion. It is here that we see the corruption underlying this new peace. The capture of Marquis Elmdor, to whom Ramza was sent to rescue, was a political ploy by Dysodarg, Ramza's older brother. Delita's sister, Teta, is captured by the rebels even as they plan to give her back. They mistakenly capture her because they think she's a noble. After all, she's worth nothing as a peasant. The obsession with class remains alive and well in Algus, whom the player meets early in their mission. He is hated with good reason from the majority of the game's fanbase. Algus, whose obsession with rank knows no bounds, kills Teta on Zalbag's orders, yet another one of Ramza's brothers. Delita, obviously, never recovers from these events. He sees the foul nature of humanity and disappears. Ramza, too, looks in disgust upon the actions of the ruling class and his brothers, who are part of that ruling class, and becomes a mercenary after shedding his inheritance and title. So, what can be done to reform this state of affairs? Each young man, Ramza and Delita, ask their own question and find a different answer. Ramza, the player character, may start as a mercenary, but eventually finds he can't stand that life while innocent lives become the pawns of those in power. As such, he finds himself the defender of Princess Ovelia, who ends up being a peasant as well. In this, he uncovers a grand conspiracy with a wide variety of players, 
each desiring either worldly dominance in power or a more sinister otherworldly power in the Zodiac Stones. Ramza, though conflicted and manipulated throughout by various parties, succeeds in quelling all comers, but is little remembered by history as anything more than a heretic of the church, which, to no one's surprise, is one of the main players in this web of lies. He lives in the end, and Ramza's fate is left ambiguous, yet he is seen as the symbol of justice and righteousness in this world of death. Dalita, on the other hand, takes a different route to the same ends. Rather than being played by the deceptive nobility, Dalita becomes one of them. He makes Ramza into a pawn of his own design, creating a situation whereby the two opposing sides of the Lion Wars, which begin as the result of the game's narrative, destroy each other. Dalita becomes the ultimate pragmatist and tactician, and his heartless and ruthless machinations serve to make him the king of Ivalice. He even makes Ovelia his wife, until she realizes she has become his pawn. That Delita kills her at the end of the game intentionally echoes Algus's killing of Teta. A person becomes a means to an end rather than a means in itself. It is that does Delita's final line holds true resonance. Ramza, what did you get? So, we come to the question, is it better to die hero, or in this case, be ultimately reviled, or live long enough to see yourself become the villain? Yasumi Mitsuno, creator of this successor to the Ogre series of games, obviously portrays Ramza as a portrait of a true hero. Delita, though ultimately a villain, a villain, started with good intentions until his revenge and ambition blinded him to its effects. Yet Ramza isn't even known to the general public through his titanic struggle against political and metaphysical evil. Delita instead becomes a true hero in the history books, even if he brings immense suffering upon himself to reach these ends. Doing what is right and true in the end remains the thematic goal of tactics, even if one isn't remembered for such good. Matthew 6 confirms a Christian's a remarkably similar take in the matter. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say unto you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Furthermore, the greatness of Delita lies only within the realm of a false history fabricated in the past like that of the Church of Glabados, who founded their religion upon a demon, slayed by Ramza, unknowingly. The public of Ivalis praises Delita without knowing the true scale of his awful deeds. It is in objective history, the Germanic scriptures, which detail the falsity of the Church's doctrines, in the Durai report that the true history reveals itself. The influence of history upon our own paradigm similarly changed the cultural paradigm into secularism, from which we still live. The occult nature of true history is just as relevant to tactics as it is to actual human civilization. Public ideas can be deceptive if we don't regard their ultimate origin. 
this is the problem of history and revelation all wrapped into one. Civilization can deceive itself with false notions of its own history and base its own foundations upon a lie. That is why the search for real, definite truth remains such a vital quest. Things cannot be merely an issue of personal opinion. Otherwise, Delita becomes a hero and Ramza becomes the villain. The Bible demonstrates a story where the meek become the rulers of the earth and the weak are made strong. It is that Christian narrative that was the objective and publicly accepted ideal of the masses. A return to such an idea, not the modern construction of Christendom, remains a fabricated myth. Rights come from God, not from man. Life comes from God, not human social engineering. Modern history's sins are vast, yet infinitely more subtle, because we live in the current context. The real revelation in history of Jesus Christ has been replaced with the lie of secularism in postmodernity. The fact that a video game can expose such ideas to a child just shows how great it is. Let's talk about how it plays, though. Final Fantasy Tactics is what we'd call, nowadays, a strategy role-playing game, specifically in the Japanese vein. Basically, you use various units, here depicted as people, with various abilities to achieve certain objectives on a battlefield. Tactics takes a turn-based approach similar to Matsuno's Tactics Ogre, except mightily improving the game from that game's clunkiness. I'm talking about the original, which received a horrible translation release in the United States. The remake is an improvement on Tactics' methodology. That's the PSP release, if you're curious, and I would recommend picking that up because both games are pretty similar, and they're both on the same platform, surprisingly enough. These objectives can range from defeat all enemies to save a particular person, but each of the game's uh, combat situations boils down to just kind of like strategy, with huge bits of story tucked in between. In that sense, Tactics' story isn't integrated much into the narrative so much as it represents the culmination of particular story events. Some battles exist just for the player's enjoyment in figuring out, as the name of the game would imply, Tactics. Each battle takes place on a map made of individual tiles. Although the game shows everything in an isometric perspective, it's really a top-down board game with height and depth rules for the placement of units. It's difficult to convey in text, but I'm sure you could look up video of Final Fantasy Tactics to make it a little more clear. The events, supposedly, happen in real time. It's a micromanagement microcosm of what would actually happen in a minor skirmish. You'll see that, like a traditional Japanese RPG, you get various party members with various abilities. Tactics uses a variation of Final Fantasy III or V's job system which allows for depth and variety in combat situations. You get the common stereotypes, a knight here, a black mage there. Some classes only have situational use, such as the orator, who can talk enemies into joining your party, or the oracle, who both inflict status ailments. These, unlike in most Final Fantasy games, have use because an incapacitated enemy can't get into range now, can he? Others represent new and improved tactical opportunities by giving reaction abilities, such as automatic potions on hit, passive abilities preventing any gear from breaking, or movement aids like teleportation. These and other class abilities work freely among all the classes as long as you learn them from the primary job. The class's ability slot is set, obviously, but secondary abilities and the like stay open. 
This allows, say, a ninja with Bushido abilities learned from the Samurai class, or a summoner who can cast Time Magic from the Time Mage class. There's a nearly infinite variety as to how you can configure your class in your party to suit your strategic preferences. Of course, some strategies work better than others, but that's pretty much true of every game where you optimize. Knowledge of the field and the height depth of a particular tile makes battles infinitely easier. Hiding behind a wall and casting a spell on an archer who only has a crossbow, for example, means that their weapon doesn't have the range nor the means to react. If they have a longbow, though, the arc will make your caster vulnerable. Knowing the CT system also helps. There's a certain turn order, determined by a unit's stats, that shows when they will perform a commanded action. A unit's CT changes depending on whether they moved, to what place they moved, and what ability or spell that they're casting. All of this information is readily available and isn't hidden from the player. Knowing when enemies will attack and when they'll move means an educated guess could spell the difference between victory and defeat. The developers, obviously, want you to think about your movements, especially in the early going. Rather than giving a straight tutorial, the game introduces these various elements without annoying dialogue boxes or fanfare. With a limited ability set, the first battle of the game only gives you access to one unit to familiarize yourself with the controls and the flow of the game whilst AI players show how battles progress. The second battle gives you control of a full complement of units, but only two classes. By forcing the player to use a limited toolset with the same tactical mindset as they saw previously, it actually teaches the player effective tactics. Don't rush into the fray or you'll be surrounded. Never expose your backside as your ability to dodge melee attacks is reduced. Protect your healers and put melee units in front of them if possible. These are true of most games like this, sure, but Tactics doesn't need to tell you this information, they show you. It's an excellent introduction, and I'm surprised most games don't teach the players so elegantly. Each battle will, in success or failure, teach you new things about the game, and that's pretty remarkable. However, it's up to the player to utilize or ignore the various options given therein. Like Matsuno's previous games, though to a much more focused degree, there's a certain freedom to the combat system. The game doesn't straightjacket players into particular class roles, and you can literally make Ramza a master fighter or caster by the game's end, or a jack-of-all-trades. That could turn out to be a problem, especially in certain segments that don't allow you to escape to the world map. Rio Vane's castle is especially brutal in this regard, anyone who's played the game knows what I'm talking about. Some battles assume Ramza becomes a war warrior, which doesn't bode well for a cloth-wearing caster. This niggling design choice always struck me as odd, but I've never used Ramza in that fashion, so it never was a problem. Not that it isn't possible to succeed, just very difficult without prior planning, hence tactics. Furthermore, in the vein of a Final Fantasy game, grinding away your problems detracts from the overall experience. Sure, this will allow any player to reach the end of the game, but that would require an absurd amount of time wasted when an innovative strategy would suit the situation. This, to me, seems the deterrent to grinding. Even though storyline battles remain fixed in level, an underleveled party can win if you've got a good head on your shoulders. That isn't true in most Final Fantasy games, and this is a refreshing change. To be frank, the Final Fantasy moniker only serves to make the game sell more copies than it would have otherwise. 
it's a unique experience in and of itself. However, too much freedom causes the game's mechanics to break and strain at the seams. For all intents and purposes, the abilities of the calculator, or arithmetician as it's known in the remake, depends on what version, breaks the game utterly and without question. CT5 Holy becomes a pretty familiar strategy for just about every purpose in every battle. To explain, a calculator has bad stats, but his skill allows him to cast spells from other classes with no cost based on particular variables and multiples. You could use, for example, level 3. This will cast the spell on any unit that has a multiple of 3. That's just an example, not an actual ability. You get what I mean. You can use the calculations going on behind the game to your advantage. So, take this powerful ability set, mix it with a caster with great stats like a summoner, and you got a pretty powerful unit. The most powerful of these is obviously CT5, because any unit that hasn't taken a turn or hasn't done anything yet will have a CT that is a multiple of 5. Hence, you can either cast Flare or Holy, the most powerful single target spells in the game, on every single unit. I guess that kind of includes your own. Now, we use Holy because some items in the game absorb Holy damage. Flare doesn't have that luxury because Flare in Final Fantasy games is usually a non-elemental spell. Hence, you can literally destroy every enemy on the field and heal every one of your units to full with one ability. Some units will live, but for the most part, it's just a cleanup job. Then you can cast it again with no cost. This won't work with every battle, but it does work with a lot of them towards the end of the game. For even more fun, get a bunch of mimes to mimic the ability, then go get a cup of coffee. The game literally will run on autopilot until everything is dead. Enemies can't move fast enough, nor can they change their equipment to suit your strategy, thus they die. Bosses remain just as vulnerable if you cast CT5 Demi 2, Demi 2 deals 50% of an enemy's total health pool, and remember, this is regardless of how big the health pool is. You can see how that would work, but that requires a little more finesse and gear finagling to prevent your own death. It's unfortunate that such seemingly obvious game-breaking tactics exist, and you can stumble upon it so easily. I imagine a lot of people figured it out. That the game gives you quote-unquote special characters like Orlando slash TG Sid who has all the free-range sword skills and a sword that gives him haste by default which is supremely broken in this game amplifies this even if you didn't find CT5 Holy. I'm not sure why Matsuno would put this in a game seeing as Ogre Battle doesn't even provide a be-all end-all strategy to its real-time combat. Still, this is part of the fun to find tactics that work and work well. I personally avoided this on my first playthrough long, long ago, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. It seems, then, that the game allows you to make these decisions on your own. The story will always proceed in the same fashion, and the characters you get will always have the same classes, but the player retains all the decision-making prowess in battle. Heck, there's plenty of people on the internet who have completed the game with one character or some other insane variation. The mechanics allow this to be successful even without grinding. That's good game design, I'd wager. Challenge for those who want challenge, and story for those who want story, thus grinding, equals a perfect combination. Would it be better if somebody rebalanced the game? Honestly, I'm not sure. The experience wasn't designed for specific use of job points, 
which you use to buy abilities as you gain experience, nor does it require a mind for mastery of the game system's mechanics. Because most JP use job points is permanent, unlike in, say, other strategy games, reloading a save to reconfigure seems tedious and unnecessary. In the same way that Dark Souls doesn't need an easy difficulty level, I find that Tactics doesn't need additional difficulty either way. Improvements to the AI, however, would help immensely. They're not always as smart as you'd like, replacing brains with brawn. They do take advantage of bad unit placement, though, and their added strength brings swift punishment. Again, real veins, castle, boss battles are awful. Still, some areas just make you laugh at how easy the game becomes towards its conclusion. Of course, this is all in retrospective analysis. When I played as a child, I was equally enthralled and utterly frustrated at the same time. I persevered, felt shock at what was happening on screen, and thoroughly enjoyed slaying everything with ninjas and samurais, which <laughs> Final Fantasy traditional-wise are both pretty powerful. It's pretty satisfying to use Orlando, regardless of how powerful it is. You can't send him into the fray without support, after all. The lack of knowledge on my part allowed me to gain new abilities and figure out how everything worked. The art design made the game attractive, while the mechanics sucked me into the story, even as the aesthetics made the blood and gore more abstract than they would have been otherwise, especially the guy who disembowels himself at the end of the game, which is weird. Anyway, the abstractions, however, worked to its advantage by allowing anyone, and everyone, to understand what's happening. Even as a complex history unfolds before the player's eyes, the conveyance of its mechanics and the striking nature of each important character's design allow us to keep track of everything, bad translations notwithstanding. This makes sense to a child's mind. They are allowed to engage on the level of the game's appearance and its rules. Think of it the way Paul does. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. This isn't to assume Paul is condemning children or anything of the sort. 1 Corinthians 13 uses the example as a metaphor for the incomplete nature of spiritual gifts. At some point, love will overwhelm all, but now we only see through a glass darkly. We can only see things through spiritual eyes because of Christ, and even then only what God wants us to know. This is very interesting when you consider that Paul calls Christians the children of God, Jesus as God's son, and that we are now co-heirs with Christ. What do we make of all this? What we are, in a spiritual sense, is children. Children have minds, not yet fully developed, but able to comprehend what is going on if the information is presented in a way that makes sense. To treat them as lesser beings, or with little respect, isn't right, as we saw earlier. But to give them a philosophical treatise on why God loves them, or why good people do bad things, isn't helpful. That's why, in my view, the Bible exists, and why the Bible was originally contained in oral tradition. Anyone can understand the love of God in this fashion. It's the same reason why, at the Passover Seder, the Jewish children recite the traditional questions to get them involved and to make them understand what God did for the chosen people in an interactive and fun manner. By analogy, that's why you are God's children, rather than God's adult friend. We only see the imperfect, not the perfect. 
Perhaps this, then, shows us why Final Fantasy Tactics was so effective, and still is effective today. It reflects this method throughout by pushing reality into unreality. It is realistic, yet childish. It is complex, but easy enough for a child to understand. That's a valuable tip for any game designer to emulate. This has been Zachary Oliver for Theology Gaming Monologues. I hope you enjoyed this long and possibly way too introspective look into Final Fantasy Tactics. If you'd like to know more, you can go to TheologyGaming.com. Give us a 5-star review if you like this. It would really help us out. And if you want to talk to me and the other people who usually do podcasts, but we've had podcast scheduling problems, then uh, head on over to Theology Gaming University, which is our Facebook group where we like talking about video games. Alright, well, hope you like this, and I will see you guys next week. With any luck, and possibly with other people. <laughs>